Section 42 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The wife occupies a very dependent position. On her shoulders falls the entire work of the household the very manifold needs of which are to be satisfied almost entirely by home industry. She must take down the tent, pack it up, load it on camels, and pitch it. She must prepare leather, felt, leather bottles, cords, waterproof material, and colors from various plants. She must spin and weave wool and hair. She must make clothes, collect camel and cattle dung, knead it with dust into tough paste, and form and dry it into cakes. She must saddle and bridle horses and camels, milk the sheep, prepare kumis, kurut, and eran, and graze the herds of sheep in the night, for the husband does this only by day, and in addition only milks the mares. His remaining occupation is almost entirely war and plundering. To share the domestic work would be for an Altaian paterfamilias an unheard-of humiliation. Originally, the choice of a wife was as unrestricted among all the Altaeans as among the Mongols, who, according to Plano Carpini and Marco Polo, might marry any relative and non-relative except their own mothers and daughters and sisters by their own mothers. But today, several nomad peoples are strictly exogamic. The bride was chosen by the father when still in her childhood. Her price, Kalim, was 27 to 100 mares, and her dowry had roughly the same value. Polygamy was consequently only possible among tribes rich in herds, but it was a necessity, as one wife alone could not accomplish the many duties. Virgin purity and conjugal fidelity are, among the Turco-Tartars, and especially among the Kyrgyz, somewhat rare virtues. On the other hand, Marco Polo agrees with Radloff, in praising the absolute fidelity of the Mongol women. The upbringing of the children entails the extreme of hardening. During its first six weeks, the newborn child is bathed daily, summer and winter alike, in the open air. Thenceforward, the nomad never washes his whole life long. The Kalmuk, in particular, is absolutely shy of water. Almost to puberty, the children go naked summer and winter. Only on the march do they wear a light calat and fur cap. They are suckled at the breast to their fifth year. At three or four, they already sit free with their mother on horseback, and a six-year-old girl rides like a sportsman. The education of the boys is limited to riding, at the most falconry in addition. On the other hand, the girls are put to most exhausting work from their tenderest years, and the value of a bride is decided by the work she can discharge. Among nearly all Altaian peoples, the son thinks little of his mother, but towards his father he is submissive. Hereditary right is purely agnatic. As soon as the married son is able to look after himself, he is no longer under the authority of his father, and if he likes, he can demand as inheritance a part of the herds adequate to establishing a separate household. Then, however, he is entirely settled with, and he cannot inherit further on the death of his father when they are younger sons, his brothers still unportioned. If impoverished, the father has the right to take back from his apportioned sons every fifth animal from the herds, Kalmuks. 
The daughters are never entitled to inherit, and on marrying receive merely a suitable dowry from their brothers, who then receive the kalim. If only daughters survive, the inheritance goes to the father's brothers or cousins, who in that case receive the kalim as well. Speedy as the Altaian is on horseback, on foot he is helpless and unwieldy, and so the dance is unknown to him. All games full of dash and excitement are played on horseback. His hospitality is marvelous. For weeks at a time he treats the new arrival to the best he has, even when it is the despised and hated Shiitish Persian. He possesses many sagas and songs, mostly in the minor key and monotonous as the steps, which are accompanied on a two-string guitar. Tenor and mezzo-soprano predominate, and the gait of the horse and the stride of the camel mark the rhythm. The surplus of the female house industry and of the herds is, as a rule, exchanged in barter for weapons and armors, metal and wooden articles, clothing material, brick tea, and grain. Instead of our gold and silver coinage, they have, sit venia verbo, a sheep coinage in which all valuations are made. Of course, they were acquainted with foreign coins from the earliest times, and obtained countless millions of pounds from tribute, plunder, and ransom of prisoners, and they used coins now and then in external trading. But among themselves they still barter, and conclude all their business in sheep, cattle, horses, and camels. Rubruqui says of the Mongols in 1253, We found nothing purchasable for gold and silver, only for fabrics, of which we had none. When our servant showed them a hyperpyron, Byzantine gold coin, they rubbed it with their fingers and smelt it to see if it were copper. They have no hand workers except a few smiths. The Altaian, and especially the Turco-Tartar barbarian, considered only the advantage of the moment. The unlimited plundering was hostile to any transit trade. But when and so long as a strong hand controlled the universal plundering spirit, a caravan trade between north and south, and especially between east and west, was possible, and with high duties formed a considerable source of income for the Central Asiatic despots. The religious conceptions of a group of primitive people inhabiting such an enormous district were of course never uniform. Today, the greatest part of the Altaians is Buddhist or Islamitic, and only a few Siberian Turkish tribes remain true to the old Altaian shamanism. The characteristic feature of shamanism is the belief in the close union of the living with their long-dead ancestors. Thus, it is an uninterrupted ancestor worship. This faculty, however, is possessed only by a few families, those of the shamans, Mongolian shaman, Turkish Kham, who pass on their power from father to son, or sometimes daughter, with the visible symbol of the shaman drum, by means of which he can call up the spirits through the power of his ancestors, and compel them to active assistance, and can separate his own soul from his body, and send it into the kingdoms of light and darkness. He prepares the sacrifice, conjures up the spirits, leads prayers of petition and thanksgiving, and in short is doctor, soothsayer, and weather prophet. In consequence, he is held in high regard, but is less loved than feared, as his ceremonies are uncanny, and he himself dangerous if evil inclined. The chosen of his ancestors attains to his shaman power not by instruction, but by sudden inspiration. He falls into a frenzy, utters inarticulate cries, 
rolls his eyes, turns himself round in a circle as if possessed, until, covered with perspiration, he wallows on the ground in epileptic convulsions. His body becomes insensible to impressions. According to accounts, he swallows automatically, and without subsequent injury, red-hot iron, knives, and needles, and brings them up again dry. These passions get stronger and stronger, till the individual seizes the shaman drum and begins shamaneering. Not before this does his nature compose itself. The power of his ancestors has passed into him, and he must thenceforth shamaneer. He is moreover dressed in a fantastic garb hung with rattling iron trinkets. The shaman drum is a wooden hoop with a skin painted with gay figures stretched over both sides, and all kinds of clattering bells and little sticks of iron upon it. In shamaneering, the drum is vigorously struck with one drumstick, and the ancestors thus invoked, interrogated about the cause of the evil which is to be banished, and the sacrifice which is to be made to the divinity in order to avert it. The beast of sacrifice is then slaughtered and eaten. The skin, together with all of the bones, is set aside as the sacrificial offering. Then follows the conjuration-in-chief, with the most frantic hocus-pocus, by means of which the shaman strives to penetrate with his soul into the highest possible region of heaven, in order to undertake an interrogation of the God of heaven himself. From the great confusion of local creeds, some shaman system as the following can be constructed, though the people themselves have only very vague conceptions of it. The universe consists of a number of layers, separated one from another by a certain something. The seventeen upper layers form the kingdom of light, seven or nine the underworld of darkness. In between lies the surface of man's earth, constantly influenced by both powers. The good divinities and spirits of heaven protect men, but the bad endeavor to destroy them. Originally there was only water, and neither earth nor heaven, nor sun nor moon. Then Tengiri Kaira Khan, the kind heaven, created first a being like himself, Kishi, man. Both soared in bliss over the water, but Kishi wished to exalt himself above the creator, and losing through his transgression the power to fly, fell headlong into the bottomless water. In his mercy, Kaira Khan caused a star to rise out of the flood upon which the drowning Kishi could sit. But as he could no longer fly, Kaira Khan caused him to dive deep down and bring up earth, which he strewed upon the surface of the water. But Kishi kept a piece of it in his mouth in order to create a special country out of it for himself. This swelled in his mouth and would have suffocated him, had he not spat it out, so that morasses formed on Kaira Khan's hitherto smooth earth. In consequence, Kaira Khan named Kishi Erlik, banished him from the kingdom of light, and caused a nine-branched tree to grow out of the earth, and under each branch created a man as first father of each of the nine peoples of the present time. In vain, Erlik besought Kaira Khan to entrust to him the nine fair and good men, but he found out how to pervert them to evil. Angered thereat, Kaira Khan left foolish man to himself and condemned Erlik to the third layer of darkness. But for himself he created the seventeen layers of heaven and set up his dwelling in the highest. As the protector and teacher of the now deserted race of man, he left behind Maitara, the sublime. 
Ehrlich, too, with the permission of the Kaira Khan, built himself a heaven and peopled it with his own subjects, the bad spirits, men corrupted by him. And behold, they lived more comfortably than the sons of the earth created by Kaira Khan. And so Kaira Khan caused Ehrlich's heaven to be shattered into small pieces, which, falling on the earth, formed huge mountains and gorges. But Ehrlich was doomed until the end of the world to everlasting darkness. And now, from the seventeenth layer of heaven, Kaira Khan controls the destiny of the universe. By emanation from him, the three highest divinities came into being. Bai Ulgan, the great, in the sixteenth, Kaisigan Tengeri, the mighty, in the ninth, and Mergen Tengeri, the all-wise, in the seventh layer of heaven, where Mother Sun dwells also. In the sixth is enthroned Father Moon. In the fifth, Kudai Yayuchi, the highest creator. Ugan's two sons, Yayik and Maitara, the protecting patrons of mankind, dwell in the third, on the milk-white sea, Sut Akol, the source of all life. Near it is the mountain Suro, the dwelling of the seven Kudai, with their subjects, the Yayuchi, the guardian angels of mankind. Here is also the paradise of the blessed and righteous ancestors of living men, who mediate between the divinities of heaven and their own descendants and can help them in their need. The earth is personified in a community of spirits, Yersu, beneficent to man, the seventeen high khans, princes, of the seventeen spring districts, whose abodes lie on the seventeen snow peaks of the highest mountains by the sources of the seventeen streams which water the land. In the seven layers of the dark underworld, prevails the dismal light of the underworld sun peculiar to them. This is the dwelling of all the evil spirits who waylay men at every turn, misshapen goblins, witches, kormos, and others ruled by Ehrlich Khan, the dreadful prince on the black throne. Still deeper lies the horrible hell, Kasirgan, where the sinners and criminals of mankind suffer just punishment. All evil comes from Ehrlich cattle disease, poverty, illness, and death. Thus, there is no more important duty for man than to hold him steadfastly in honor, to call him Father Ehrlich, and to appease him with rich sacrifices. If a man is to be born, Ulgan, at the request of the former's ancestors, orders his son Yayik to give a Yayuchi charge of the birth, with the life force from the milk-white sea. This Yayuchi then watches over the newly born during the whole of his life on earth. But at the same time, Ehrlich sends forth a Kormos to prevent the birth or at least hamper it and to injure and misguide the newly born his whole life long. And if Ehrlich is successful in annihilating the life forces of a man, Kormos drags the soul before Ehrlich's judgment seat. If the man was more good than bad, Ehrlich has no power over him. Kormos stands aside and the Yayuchi brings the soul up to paradise. But the soul of the wicked is abandoned by its Yayuchi, dragged by its Kormos to hell in the deepest layer of the underworld, and flung into a gigantic cauldron of scalding tar. The worst sinners remain forever beneath the surface of the tar. The rest rise gradually above the bubbling tar, until at last the crown of the head with the pigtail comes to view. So even the sinner's good works are not in vain, the blessed in heaven reflect on the kindnesses once done by him. 
and they and his ancestors send his former Yayuchi to hell, who grasps him by the pigtail, pulls him out of the tar, and bears the soul up to heaven. For this reason the Kalmuks let their pigtails grow, as did many of the nomad peoples of history. However, there is no absolute justice. The gods of light, like the spirits of darkness, allow themselves to be won over by sacrificial viands, and if rich offerings are forthcoming, they willingly wink at transgression. They are envious of man's wealth and demand gifts from all, and so it is advisable to stand well with both powers, and that can only be done through the medium of the shamans. So long as Ehrlich is banished in the darkness, a uniform ordering of the universe exists till the last day when everything created comes to an end and the world ceases to be. With shamanism, fire worship was closely associated. Fire purifies everything, wards off evil, and makes every enchantment ineffective. Hence, the sick man and the strange arrival, and everything which he brings with him must pass between two fires. Probably fire worship was originally common to all the Altaians, and the Magyars also of the ninth century were described by the Arabian geographer as fire worshippers. In consequence of the healthy climate, the milk diet, and the Spartan hardening, the Altaian enjoys excellent health, hence the saying, healthy as a Kyrgyz. There are not a few old men of 80, and some of a 100 years. Infectious diseases are almost unknown, chiefly because the constant smoke in the tent acts as a disinfectant, though combined with the ghastly filthiness, it promotes the very frequent eye complaints, itch, and eruptions of the skin. In consequence of the constant wandering on camelback and through the shaman hocus-pocus, illness and death at home are vexations, and sudden death on the field of battle is preferred. In order not to be forgotten, the Turco-Tartar, in contrast to the Mongol, likes to be buried in a conspicuous place, and as such places do not exist on the steppes, after a year there is heaped over the buried corpse an artificial mound, which according to the wealth of the dead man rises to a hill-like tumulus. At the same time, an ostentatious funeral festival lasting seven days is held, with races, prize combats, and other games on horseback. Hundreds of horses, camels, and sheep are then consumed. The nomad loves his horses and weapons as himself. The principal weapon is the lance, and in European warfare, the Uhlans and Cossacks survive from the armies of the steppes. The nomad peoples who invaded Europe were all wonderfully sure bowmen. The value of the bow lies in the treacherous noiselessness of the arrow, which is the best weapon for hunting and ambush, and is therefore still in use today together with the rifle. In addition, there have always been long-handled iron hatchets and pick-shaped battle axes for striking and hurling, and the bent saber. The warrior's body was often protected by a shirt of armor made of small polished steel plates, or by a harness of ox leather plates, the head by a helmet, all mostly Persian or Caucasian work. The hard, restless life of the mounted nomad is easily disturbed by pressure from his like, by the death of his cattle from hunger and disease, and by the prospect of plunder, which makes him a professional robber. Of this, the Turkoman was long a type. The leading features in the life of a Turkoman are the Alaman, predatory expedition, or the Chapeau, the surprise. The invitation to any enterprise likely to be attended with profit finds him ever ready to arm himself and to spring to his saddle. 
the design itself is always kept a profound secret, even from the nearest relative. And as soon as the Sirdar, chief elect, has bestowed upon him by some mala or other the fatiha, benediction, every man betakes himself, at the commencement of the evening, by different ways, to a certain place indicated before as the rendezvous. The attack is always made either at midnight, when an inhabited settlement, or at sunrise, when a caravan or any hostile troop is its object. This attack of the Turkomans, like that of the Huns and Tartars, is rather to be styled a surprise. They separate themselves into several divisions and make two, hardly ever three, assaults upon their unsuspecting prey. For according to a Turkoman proverb, try twice, turn back the third time. The party assailed must possess great resolution and firmness to be able to withstand a surprise of this nature. The Persians seldom do so. Very often a Turkoman will not hesitate to attack five or even more Persians, and will succeed in his enterprise. Often the Persians, struck with a panic, throw away their arms, demand the cords, and bind each other mutually. The Turkomans have no occasion to dismount, except for the purpose of fastening the last of them. He who resists is cut down, the coward who surrenders has his hands bound, and the horseman either takes him up on his saddle, in which case his feet are bound under the horse's belly, or drives him before him. Whenever from any cause this is not possible, the wretched man is attached to the tail of the animal, and has, for hours and hours, even for days and days, to follow the robber to his desert home. Each captive is then ill-treated, until his captor learns from him how high a ransom can be extracted from his kinsmen. But ransoming was a long way from meaning salvation itself, for on the journey home the ransomed were not seldom captured again and once more enslaved. Poor captives were sold at the usual price in the slave markets at Bokhara, Kiva, etc. For example, a woman of fifty for ten ducats. Those that could not be disposed of and were retained as herdsmen had the sinews of their heels cut to hinder them from flight. Until their overthrow by Skobolev in 1881, more than 15,000 Tekka Turkomans contrived such raids day and night. About a million people in Persia alone were carried off in the last century, and made on the average certainly not less than 10 pounds per head. In the 9th century, the Magyars and their nomadic predecessors in South Russia, according to Ibn Rusta's Arabian source, behaved exactly as the Turkomans in Persia. They provided for the slave markets on the Pontus so many Slav captives that the word slave finally became the designation in the West of the worst servitude. With man-stealing was associated cattle-stealing, baranta, which finally made any attempt at cattle-rearing impossible for the systematically plundered victim and drove him to vegetarianism without milk nourishment. And what a vegetarianism! when agriculture had to suffer from the ever-recurring raids and from bad harvests, and where the predatory herdsmen settled for the winter in the midst of an agricultural population, and in his own interests allowed them a bare existence as his serfs, there came about a remarkable connection of two strata of people, different in race and for a time in speech also. A typical land in this respect is Fergana, the former Khanate of Kokand, in the southern border of the great Kyrgyz horde. The indigenous inhabitants of this country, the entirely vegetarian Tajiks and Sarts, from immemorial times passed from the hands of one nomad people to another, 
in the most frightful servitude. In the sweat of their brows, they dug canals for irrigation, cultivated fields, and put into practice a hundred arts, only to pay the lion's share to their oppressors, who, in the full consciousness of their boundless power, indulged the most bestial appetites. But the majority of the dominant horde could not turn from their innate and uncontrollable impulse to wander. In the spring they were drawn irresistibly to the free air of the high-lying steppes, and only a part of them returned to winter among the enslaved peasantry. This hopeless state of affairs continued to the Russian conquest in 1876, for the directly adjoining deserts always poured forth wild hordes afresh, who nipped in the bud any humaner intercourse of herdsmen and peasants. For rapine and slavery were inevitable wherever the nomads of the vast steppes and deserts made their abode in the immediate neighborhood of more civilized lands. What their own niggardly soil denied them, they took by force from the fruitful lands of their neighbors. And because the plundered husbandmen could not pursue the fleet-mounted nomad into the trackless desert, he remained unprotected. The fertile districts on the edge of the Sahara and the Arabian desert were also in this frightful position, and Iran felt this calamity all the harder, because the adjoining deserts of Turan are the most extensive and terrible and their inhabitants the wildest of all the nomads of the world. No better fared the peoples inhabiting East Europe on the western boundaries of the steppe zone. As early as the 4th century BC, Ephorus stated that the customs, according to the individual peoples, of the Scythians and the Sarmatians, both names covered the most medley conglomerations of nomads and peasants, were very dissimilar. Some even ate human beings, as the Masagetae ate their sick or aged parents. Others abstained from all animals. A thousand years later, Pseudo-Caesarius of Nazianzus tells of a double people, that of the Sclavines, Slavs, and Physonites on the lower Danube, of whom the Sclavines abstained from meat-eating. And Constantine Porphyrogenitus in the year 952 stated that the Russians... North Germanic Varangians, who, coming from Scandinavia, held sway over the Slavs of Russia, bought horses, cattle, and sheep from their terrible nomadic neighbors, the Patsanaks, because they had none of these animals themselves, i.e. in the Slav lands which they dominated. In certain districts of East Europe, therefore, vegetarianism was permanent among the peasant folk, who for more than 2,000 years had been visited by the Altaeans with rapine and murder, this can be proved from original sources to have been the case from the 4th century BC to the 10th century AD, that is, for 1400 years. It is exactly the same state of things as in Fergana in modern times. As long as a nomad horde finds sufficient room in the steppe, it does not think of emigration, and always returns home from its raids richly laden with the plunder. But if the steppe zone is thrown into a ferment by struggles for the winter pastures or by other causes, the relatively weakest horde gets pushed out of the steppe and must conquer a new home outside the zone. For it is only weak against the remaining nomad hordes, but against any other state upon which it falls, it is irresistible. All the nomads of history who broke into Europe, the Scythians, Sarmatians, Huns, Bulgarians, Avars, Magyars, Cumans, were the weakest in the steppes and had to take to flight, whence they became the assailants of the world, 
before whom the strongest states tottered. With an energetic Khan at their head, who organized them on military lines, such a horde transformed itself into an incomparable army, compelled by the instinct of self-preservation to hold fast together in the midst of the hostile population which they subjugated. For however superfluous a central government may be in the steppe, it is of vital importance to a conquering nomad horde outside it. Consequently, while that part of the people which remained in the steppe was split up into loose clan associations, the other part, which emigrated, possessed itself of immense territories, exterminated the greater part of entire nations, and enslaved the rest, scattered them as far as they pleased, and founded a despotically governed state with a ridiculously small band of horsemen. The high figures in the chronicles are fictions exaggerated by terror and imagination, seeing that large troops of horsemen who recklessly destroyed everything around them would not have found in a narrow space even the necessary pasture for their many horses. Each Mongol under Chinggis Khan, for example, was obliged to take with him 18 horses and mares, so as always to have a fresh steed and sufficient mare's milk and horse's blood for food and drink. Two corps, under the command of Sabutai and Chebi, sufficed this great conqueror for the overthrow of West Asia. In four years, they devastated and in great part depopulated Khorasan, North Persia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Armenia, Caucasia, the Crimea, and the Volga territories, took hundreds of towns, and utterly defeated in bloody engagements the large armies of the Georgians, Leskians, Circassians, and Cumans and the united forces of the Russian princes. But they spared themselves as much as possible by driving those of the subjugated people who were capable of bearing arms into the fight before them, as the Huns and Avars did previously, and cutting them down at once when they hesitated. End of section 42. Recording by Colleen McMahon.